0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, November 18th, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. The criminal justice system needs an overhaul, so says Ninth Circuit Federal Judge Alex Kaczynski. Following a debate on precisely what ought to change in the criminal justice system, we spoke about a few of his ideas for changing criminal justice.
1: Well, we have more, not just in proportion to the population, we have the biggest prison population of anybody in the world. Uh, bar none, including China which with 1.6 billion people. and um, you know, it's a, it's a, uh, I think cost has something to do with it, I think the fact that we can afford it, but I don't think you can afford it that much more than Canada or England or Germany, whose numbers are minuscule compared to ours. So I don't think it's just a matter of being able to afford it. Um, also the cost of incarceration isn't just reflected by the cost. Though of course, the people away and maintaining them in prison. Uh, they're all the years lost that they could be working, they're all the years lost that they could be with their families, they're all the years lost where they could be rehabilitating and re- reintegrating to society. Um, you know, if you serve two or three years in prison, you know it's not a good thing, but you can come back and you as the same person. You spend 20 years in prison, everything's changed. Your children are no longer children, they're now adults who don't know you. Uh, technology has changed. Uh, job market, whatever skills you had, are gone. Uh, we're paying a, just tremendous societal price for uh, for maintaining that many people in prison for that long. What is the purpose of a grand jury?
0: Uh, Judge Wilkinson talked about this this uh, claim that. Grand juries are a tool of the prosecution. To what extent is that true, and, and what do you take the purpose of grand jury to be?
1: Uh, a grand jury is supposed to sift through evidence and see if there's a, enough of a case there to uh, bring a prosecution. Uh, it's very rare for a grand jury to say no to a prosecutor. Defendants don't get to... I mean, they, they can be brought before the grand jury and forced to testify, but uh, uh, they don't need to talk to the defendant at all. The defense lawyer never sees the inside of the grand jury, can't address him, can't, uh, can't argue. Uh, it's all a tool for the prosecution to, to, to get an indictment. And um, uh, it's been said uh, often that uh, any prosecutor worth his salt can in, get a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich. And that's pretty much right. I think grand juries uh, see themselves as um, doing the work of the prosecution. Do you, do you think that it Does that pose a problem, as far as you're concerned? It depends on what uh, you think the grand jury should be there for. If people think the grand jury is some sort of check on runaway prosecutors, then they're mistaken. Uh, I'm not really sure why. We need grand juries, given that they don't exercise any independent uh, authority. Maybe at one point they did, but now they don't at all. Is forensics a science? Yes and no. Some forensics is, some forensics isn't. Um, DNA matching is a science, and um, it's been validated. And uh, if done properly, it, it is highly reliable. Um, you can falsify it. You can. You can. You can. Um, Run tests, and um, people will be able to tell you accurately whether something is this, two samples are the same or not the same. And uh, you, so you, you know, see, that's about as much as you can demand of science. Um, fingerprints are more nebulous. We think of them as being sort of like photographs, but it all depends on how much of a fingerprint you get in a latent print, and. Uh, on the skill of the examiner, there are error rates with fingerprints. So I still think it's a science, but like all science experiments, it's not perfect. It doesn't work every time. So you need to be aware of the error rate. So if you give the idea uh, to juries that an expert says this is, these two prints are the same, uh, it, it's absolutely 100% true, then they're being misled. Most we can say is it's 96% true or 94% true, and you can discount that. Uh, some science is not science at all. Um, the bite marks. We thought we used to think that bite marks was science because some people would come in and saying we've got lots of experiences and we can match bite marks to. Uh, to people's teeth, it turns out that's not science at all. More often than not, when you actually know, uh, uh, you run an experiment, and you actually know whether the bite marks match the uh, person's teeth, more often than not, they get it wrong. Uh, So it varies a great deal. The problem has been that we have treated... Experts in criminal cases very different from experts in civil cases. In civil cases, experts have to pass a Daubert test, which means they have to show they're applying scientific methods. that's validated, that it's independently provable. Uh, that, that you know, it has science behind it. Uh, whereas a lot of times uh, in criminal cases, uh, nothing like that happens.
0: So it's an information asymmetry that is essentially used sometimes to
1: mislead juries. Misleads to just deliberate misleading. I think prosecutors who put on this evidence uh, talk to their expert. The expert said, "Oh yes, these two uh, footprints are the same," and I think the prosecutors believe it. So because they themselves have been misled, and even the expert may believe it. So you know he may be misleading himself. The fact of the matter, though, is they can't replicate it. They can't do it every time. If, if you if you, if you if you test it with a known sample, and they get it wrong often enough, you can say, well, you may be convinced of it, but it's not science. You made reference to Michael
0: Nifong, uh, the prosecutor in the Duke lacrosse rape case, yes. and his prosecutorial misconduct. Um, that's come to be referred to by some folks as the Michael Nifong exception. That is to say, he. I believe was sentenced to a day in jail, and uh how pervasive do you believe that kind of misconduct is in the criminal justice system?
1: I think that kind of misconduct is relatively rare uh, I mean what he did he did it on a massive scale and he he did it uh, quite uh, openly and uh, um he, he I mean he, he he did a number of things he hid evidence he held press conferences he polluted the jury and so there' lots of stuff he did that that uh, that was pretty egregious. But subsets of that, hiding the evidence happens, I think, every day, uh, uh, or failing to produce exculpatory evidence. Um, the, the problem, for example, let's just focus on that, is that the prosecution takes a position, the Justice Department takes a position, all the of prosecutorial offices take a position that they only have to provide exculpatory evidence if it's material. But the prosecution doesn't have any way of knowing what's material to the defense. It's very easy if you're a prosecutor to say, oh, this is not the material, I don't have to provide it. Uh, and for that reason, keep the evidence uh, from, from the defense that it, it should have. We then find out about it, years later, after there's a jury verdict, and once a case, once there's a conviction. All the presumption run against the defendant, and you make every effort to try to keep the conviction in place, even though there might have been some mishap along the way. For prosecutors who,
0: let's say, have a, a bad mind in, in engaging in, the, in this type of misconduct, what are the costs to be paid?
1: Almost none. Almost none. It, uh, they, uh, they have some risk that somewhere down the line... It'll come out, and they'll look bad, uh, or that it'll come out, and some court will say, oh, you know, the prosecutor should have produced it, but it's harmless error, so the conviction sticks. By that time, they're off, and they cushy job at the law firm, having listed this as a conviction, you know, as part of the resume that they got this conviction, and of course, they don't add that they got it by uh, foul means, or the conviction was set aside, or it was a conviction that doesn't you know, something that winds up being not a crime. They don't, they don't ever list anything like that. And, uh, or maybe there are judges by that time, and then, oh, well, boy, nobody wants to mess with the judge. So it's very, very rare. It's a very low-risk proposition for a, for a prosecutor who wants to uh, break the rules. What changes would you
0: suggest to make that a more uh, substantial problem for prosecutors who do that?
1: I would do away with absolute immunity, absolute prosecutorial immunity. If prosecutors are shown to have knowingly done something that violates the Constitution, I think that would make them subject to suit, subject to qualified immunity. Um, I think that you need to have prosecutorial integrity units, independent units that look at prosecutions that are questionable and, if necessary, bring criminal charges. I think there has to be some risk of criminal charges when, when, when prosecutors misbehave. Uh, and uh, I think that um, a, um, what North Carolina has done in the wake of uh, the LaCrosse case and other couple of other cases where prosecutors misbehaved is they have an open discovery policy, basically an open-file policy. Anything that the prosecutor has, he has to turn over to the defense, period. And you suggest that
0: this process should be done before the plea stage.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Judge Wilkinson, in your discussion, also talked about this attack on plea bargains. It, it strikes me that the plea bargain is a far less effective tool for prosecutors to uh, avoid the cost and time of a trial if we don't have mandatory minimum sentences.
1: This is always an incentive; they just have to bargain down more. You know the the. What the mandatory minimum does is, is raises the stakes for the defendant. Uh, doing away with the mandatory minimum just lowers the stakes somewhat, and just so the prosecutors have to be more more willing to compromise.
0: What do you think of mandatory minimums more generally?
1: Generally, a bad idea. For one thing, I think they're too high, and. Uh, um, I mean, I'm not sure I would mind the mandatory minimum of two years or some crimes, or one year or something. Where, where, you know, the Congress or the legislature wants to make sure that somebody actually does spend some time in prison. I can see that. Uh, Ten years, twenty years, thirty years, mandatory minimum. I just think uh, uh, it's just too much. I don't think you get anything out of it. I think the the the, the uh, I have actually sentenced uh, somebody to twenty year man to a minimum, and i've been judged long enough where i've actually seen him come out and it was a destroyed man uh, he went in he was young, he had a family, he had young children he had a, you know um, you know what he did wasn't you know was was nothing a criminal but uh, he he was all around at least involved with his community involved with his family and Part of uh, you know, uh, part of life. When he came out twenty years later, seventeen years later, he had good time, time off for good behavior, and um, he come out. He was a shadow of himself. His family, his children, no longer knew him and didn't want him anything to do with him. Whatever skill sets he had were gone. Uh, he had no way to reintegrate in the community. Um, he um, he was a broken man. And I'm not, frankly, sure how we expect him to put bread on the table. How he expect him to survive? Um, it seems to me, if we keep people in prison for that long, we ought to spend the last half of their imprisonment training them, getting them ready to face the real world and to face the real world in a way that they can they can make uh, make a living. And uh, and we don't do that.
0: Alex Kaczynski sits on the Ninth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals. We spoke following a forum on the challenges and opportunities for changing our criminal justice system. You can watch that forum at Cato.org.